Good morning. It's great to see you, most of you, all of you. Just thought I'd wake you up. Remember years ago when our girls were small and precious and still lived at home? It was one spring, I think, I was home for lunch, and we threw a bunch of bread in the backyard, which was right behind where we uh, behind our table, and in just a matter of minutes, all these birds came and were, you know, picking up all the, all the bread. And a beautiful, uh, big bluebird came and landed and then was real close where we could see it, you know, real closely. And he, the bluebird couldn't see us. And our daughter, Katie, at the time was uh, young enough to still be inquisitive and to say, you know, whatever she was thinking. And she asked, uh, she said she wanted to go and pick it up. And then she asked, why do the birds always fly away? And Kathy said, well, imagine if a big elephant came and tried to pick you up. You'd be afraid. And Katie said, well, I wouldn't hurt him. (laughs) And then the wisdom that flowed from my wife's mouth was great. She says, but the bird only sees your outside. He doesn't see your inside. You know, I've never thought, I've never forgotten that, even though that's happened many years ago. Just the words are so true, not only of birds, but of us. And when we're looking around at one another, as well as we know one another, and certainly as, as, uh, as well as we don't know strangers, we just look at the outside. And we're pretty committed to our own outside, I read a statistic that was pretty amazing. I was actually pretty startled by it. A study that discovered that here in the United States, 94% of men and 99% of women would change something about their looks if they could. And we've all seen that 6% of men that obviously don't care the way they look. But we work hard at this. I mean, just think about this morning. Think about all you did just to be sitting where you are right now. It took time. Think about the process. I mean, that first look in the mirror right after, you know, you wake up. But think about everything you had to go through. I mean, bathing, the hair, the the lotions, the shampoo, the soap, the deodorant. I mean, it just goes on and on. If you started to make a list of everything it took to get you looking like you look right now, It would be amazing. And since Sunday morning, we tend to spend a little extra fuss about how we look. It's sort of depressing to look around and think, this is as good as it gets. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) This is as good as it gets. Well, it's not just our looks, but it's also the other things that make up our lives. And in a small way, my daughter's fascination with the bluebird and the confusion about the bluebird matches, in some sense, one of our greatest struggles with God because uh, we, we really focus on the outside, even in our walk with, with Christ. And if you think about the things that we, you pray for and the things I pray for, most of the time, their physical needs. 
their immediate needs. They are emotional needs. They are needs that we perceive that need to be met immediately. And they're often things that really have very little to do with our spiritual life or our maturity, our walk with Christ. They're more about comfort. We're sort of like Jonah under that plant, and we, we complain. We're more concerned about the plant withering and our comfort than we are about a whole city who's wandered from God. I've thought about that a lot through the years because it's just the way it is. Because all we see is, all we tend to focus on, even in our walk with God, is the outside. We find that most of what we're disappointed about in our relationship with God is because he doesn't say yes to those requests. No, I mean, sometimes he does, but not all the time, not near as much as we want him to. Most of the time, God either says wait or he just gives us a flat no. And our inability to understand God's reasoning, uh, we're confused about this. And, and Lord, why don't, you, why don't you say yes to these things? I mean, I'm hurting. I'm, I'm struggling. I'm suffering. Don't you care is our thought. And the reality is we can't understand all that God does. We, we can't see the big picture like God does. God sees things we can't see. And as a result, sometimes he says no to things that we, we can't understand. When we find ourselves most disappointed with God, we're really not disappointed with God as much as we're disappointed with our expectations of God. Well, let's look together at the book of Micah. The book of Micah. We're going through a single message of each book of the Bible, and Micah is what I'd like for us to look at today because it is particularly relevant to our season. Micah prophesied 700 years before Christ. Micah was a contemporary with the great prophet Isaiah. And Micah's book mentions the destruction of the northern kingdom. And if you've been with us, you, you follow through the whole history as we've gone through the whole Old Testament basically up to this point where God brought his people into the land through the promise made to Abraham. He settled them in the land, and then he told them, here's how it works. You get to stay in the land if you obey me. And if you obey me, it'll rain. I'll provide. If you don't obey me, it's not going to rain to motivate you to obey. And if you still don't obey, eventually I'm going to take you out of the land altogether and then bring you back at a later date. Well, that's what is about to happen. In fact, in Micah's time of prophesying, it happened in the northern kingdom. Israel was split into a northern and southern kingdom at this time. The northern kingdom, the Assyrians came in, hauled off the northern kingdom to Assyria in 722 B.C. Micah prophesying about the time of Isaiah around 700 B.C. through the, the reigns of several kings, including Hezekiah. Um, he talks not only about the northern kingdom being taken away, but he also warns the southern kingdom you're next. So the motivation there is to shape up. Well, you're in Micah, probably chapter 1, because I just said open to Micah, but if you'll turn with me to Micah 6, chapter 6, we're going to look at a wonderful section, and we'll also look at some of chapter 5 and 7. But Micah was born 
or his hometown, is a place you may not have heard of. It's called Morasheth Gath. Morasheth Gath. We learn this from chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14, I think, in chapter 1. It talks about Micah of Morasheth or Morasheth Gath. And if you've ever been to Israel and you have ridden down from Jerusalem to the Ela Valley where David fought Goliath, you've probably passed Morasheth Gath without recognizing it. Morsheth Gath is on the, would be on the northern side of that, or that, um, that route, and it's just a little hill there. Today it's called Tel Goded, and it is a, um, it's just a, a hill. It's got a lot of caves, and it's sort of people like to mountain bike all over today, Micah's hometown. But I like, I like being there because if, you, if you're there and you're on top of that, that tell that looks out across the hills, Toward the east, you can see up into the hills, toward Jerusalem and toward Bethlehem. Micah was raised right in the very area to the people that he's ministering to and the people he's warning, here's what's going to happen if you don't walk with God. Micah 6, let's start right in verse 1 and work our way down through some of these verses. Hear now what the Lord is saying, arise Plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people. Even with Israel, he will dispute. So we're given sort of a metaphor or setting here of a court, and in a sense, God takes Israel, or Judah, I should say, to court. And the Lord, you could sort of define the roles this way, the Lord is the plaintiff, Judah is the defendant, and the mountains were called, are called here as the witnesses. And in a sense, the, the mountains also get to be the jury. They have witnessed the history of these people. And if they could speak, if the mountains could speak, they would witness the truthfulness of what the Creator is about to say. I don't know if you've read C.S. Lewis's book called God in the Dock, God in the Dock. To a, a British mind, and, and specifically in C.S. Lewis's generation, the dock was that, that part of a, of a jury where you're basically on the stand. It's like God on the stand. God is the one you know, on trial here as opposed to anybody else. So that's what he means when he says God in the dock. Listen to this quote from that great book. Lewis writes, The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the the roles are reversed. He is the judge, and God is in the dock. Man is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is, is that man is on the bench and God is on the dock. Man is the judge and God's the one on trial. And in a sense, that was not only true in Lewis's day, it's certainly true in our day, but in a sense it was also true in Micah's day because God is going to basically say, you're trying to indict me. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 3. The Lord says, My people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? 
Or if you've got the New International Version, it says, How have I burdened you? Answer me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. My people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and from Shittim to Gilgal, so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. So, this is, this is the indictment. God centers his indictment on their false accusation, and we'll get into that here. But the false accusation is basically that God has wearied them, or as I mentioned, the New International Version probably gives a little better translation there where it says burdened. And he asks, how have I wearied you, or how have I burdened you? And he says, answer me, and they don't answer, and so God answers. It's interesting that word, the Hebrew term there for weary or burdened, is a word that just that doesn't simply mean weary or burdened, but it refers to a person becoming tired physically. This is when you've like lifted something or you've done something physically and you're just weary of it and you can't do another one. Like right now I'm doing physical therapy for my shoulder and my physical therapist says I want you to do this basically until you can't do it anymore. So I understand what it's like to be physically burdened when you're trying to do a particular exercise. You get to the point where you just can't do it one more time. And God is asking them, you're telling me that I've burdened you. How have I done that? Well, they don't answer. You know, like when you ask your kids something, you say, you know, why are you doing that? And they don't answer because they know they're guilty. So God answers. And he relates what he has done. Is this a burden? And he, he describes, let me tell you what I've done for you. Is this a burden? Verse 4, he says, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I delivered you from slavery in Egypt. I have redeemed you and made you a brand new nation. He also says that he gave them quality leadership in Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Incidentally, you know, Mary, Mary's name is the Greek version. We've sort of anglicized the Greek term Mary is Miriam. It's the Old Testament Miriam is Mary's name. Anyway, and then God also says to remember what Balaam answered to Balak. You remember that incident in the book of Numbers? Balak was the king of Moab, and he hired Balaam to curse the prophet Balaam to curse Israel. And instead, God turned Balaam's curse into a blessing. So God says, here's another thing I did. I even turned someone who tried to curse you into a blessing. He mentions traveling from Shittim to Gilgal because it would have included the miraculous crossing of the Jordan River. So in, in these few verses, God basically said, how have I burdened you? Let me tell you how I burdened you. I, I redeemed you from slavery. I gave you quality leaders. I've turned people who wanted to curse you into a blessing. And I brought you into the land. I brought you into the promised land. Where is there a curse? Where is there a burden in all of that? The phrase that we've mentioned here, I wearied you or I burdened you, in Hebrew, it's, that's verse 3, it sounds very similar to the phrase, I brought you up, in verse 4. If you compare those two words, 
in Hebrew, it sounds very similar. And God is sort of being, it's sort of a play on words. He's basically saying, I've burdened you, but in reality, I've unburdened you. You say, I've burdened you, but in reality, I've unburdened you. I have freed you, and I have given you so many great blessings. Well, there's a principle that we can learn from this text just right away, and we've got a couple of principles this morning, and here's the first one. It's timeless, and it applies to us as well. When you feel like God has burdened you, ponder his acts of grace in your life. When you feel like God has burdened you, ponder his acts of grace in your life. It's so easy to forget what God has done. It's so easy to, to focus in on what he hasn't done. It's so easy to focus on, God, why haven't you answered my current prayers as opposed to giving him thanks for all the things he's done in our lives that at the time we were thankful for, and now they're just entitlements, we feel, as opposed to his grace in our lives. It's easy to forget what God's done for us and to focus only on what we want him to do. And when he doesn't take away our pain right away, when he doesn't make our life easy, when he doesn't give us more money, when he doesn't, like Judah, we feel that he's made life hard for us, that God has burdened us. God has given me a hard life. And the reality is, it's not near as hard as it could be or as it should be given our sin and light of God. So when you feel like God has burdened you, ponder his acts of grace in your life. Think about your Egypt. Think about your delivery from slavery and sin. We've all got different stories. Sometimes we call it our testimony, but really it's God's testimony in our lives of what he's done. Think about how lost you were before Christ. Think about the leaders, the Moseses, the Aarons, the Miriams, the men and women, the leaders, the pastors, the, the teachers that God has brought into your life who have given you insight into the scripture that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Think about the, uh, the Balaams and the Balaks. Think about how God has, how there's been evil done to you, and yet God has turned that around in your life and brought about good. Think about the journeys that he's taken you on. Like for them, it was traveling from Shittim to Gilgal, crossing the Jordan River. Think about the great transitions in your life. At the time, fearful, terrifying, but yet in hindsight, you look back and you see his grace. You feel like God has burdened you? Take some time to ponder his acts of grace in your life. Just as God ransomed Israel from slavery, God's also ransomed us from sin by sending Jesus to die on the cross. Keep your spot here, and well, you don't have to keep your spot. We're just going to turn back one chapter, but turn back one chapter to chapter 5 and look at a few verses here. Micah 5, the prophet Micah predicted the very place, the very city where Jesus, the Messiah, would be born, and he did this 700 years before Jesus was born. Seven centuries before Christ was born. Micah's words. Look at uh, Micah 5. Let's start in verse 2. 
He writes, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, for uh, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. This is a prophecy seven centuries before the birth of Christ, not only of where he'll be born, but what he will do. He will be born in Bethlehem in this insignificant town, too little to be among the significant clans of Judah, but he will be one who will be the ruler of Israel. Verse 2 says that he is eternal in his nature. Here you have a, a, a hint of the deity of Jesus Christ. And the birth through Mary is there in verse 3. But then also, verse 4 and 5 looks forward to his coming kingdom, where this one born in insignificant Bethlehem will be the king of all Israel and will rule over, or will rule the world uh, to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. I love it that it says, at that time, he will be great. This is what Gabriel said that, uh, in Luke chapter 1. He will be great. And this is our Savior Jesus. From his hometown there in Morsheth Gath, Micah could look 20 miles to the west, seven centuries into the future, and note that something very significant would come from Bethlehem. Um, you know there's one, more than one Bethlehem in Israel. We are familiar with the one Jesus is born in, but there's another one up in Galilee, and there may even be another one, but I, I don't remember. But I know there's another one up in Galilee, and uh, sometimes people think, well, which one was Jesus born in? Because, you know, J Jesus was raised up in Galilee, maybe he was born up there. Well, you know, it's been a lot of time trying to defend this, because Micah tells us, verse 2, you Bethlehem Ephrathah, we're told which Bethlehem it is. Ephrathah, if you were to look back in Genesis, I think, 35, remember when Rachel died on the way to Bethlehem, giving birth to Benjamin, on the way to Ephrath. And so we're told which one it was. And we know from the geography of that passage exactly where it was. Plus, this says Judah, from the clans of Judah, verse 2. So you don't have to do a lot of time to defend it. Also, the angels said, today is born to you in the city of David. David's city was not up in Galilee. So it's Bethlehem of Judah, the Bethlehem that's about six miles south of Jerusalem. I love Corey Ten Boom's words. She said, if Jesus were born 1,000 times in Bethlehem and not in me, then I would still be lost. I like that because it talks about the priority of the coming of our Messiah. Jesus indeed, the Messiah indeed, would come to reign. But first, he would come to die. Because we don't want to live forever in a fallen state. We want to live forever redeemed, resurrected. In fact, this is why when God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden, 
He sent them out. And in fact, if you were to look at Genesis 3, there's this wonderful passage there that says um, that they're going to send them out lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever. And then there's a dash, at least in our English language. But the Hebrew text doesn't finish it, so we'd stick a dash there. It's like, that's unthinkable, that God would want Adam and Eve to live forever in a fallen state. It's better that they be exiled from Eden, that they die, and that they be resurrected so that they can live forever in a glorified state. The same is true of us. Of course, the, all the expectation of the Messiah was come and crush Rome. We're oppressed. We have physical needs. We have immediate needs. We're not thinking long term. We're thinking immediate. But Jesus came first to die. Now, flip over. You're in Micah 5. Flip over to Micah 7. Look at the end of that chapter. It's actually the end of the book, the last three verses. Micah 7, 18. Micah asks a great question. He says, Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Micah ends with hope. He ends looking forward to the future of what God will do. And the, the great promise here is that sin will be forgiven. God pardons iniquity. And the question is wonderful. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity? And the answer is none. There isn't any other God that does that. All other religions come to God or their version of God by letting good deeds outweigh bad deeds. You got more good deeds? Great, you're in. Too many bad deeds? Sorry, you're out. That's not the way God operates. God operates by removing sin altogether. And he did that, we know, because of our Lord Jesus dying on the cross. Look at uh, verse 18 and 20 once again. The end of 18 and about the middle of 20 uses the phrase unchanging love. And you might have a marginal reading there that says, see, mine says, uh, or loving kindness. Unchanging love, loving kindness. The, the word there is the Hebrew word hesed, or to say it right, chesed. It's, it's a word that means, basically, we would translate it as grace. Because of God's unconditional commitment, his unchanging love, his loving kindness. There's, it's a word so rich that one word can't do the job. It's a rich, rich word. Now, remember that word, hesed, because we're going to come back to it. There was a priest, I heard this story, I was told it was true, so that makes it okay to share, but I'm not so sure, but maybe it was. Anyway, the principle of it's good. Anyway, here's the story. There was a priest in the Philippines who carried the burden of a secret sin that he had committed when he was in seminary, and he, um, many years before, and he had repented, but still he had no peace about it. He still carried the burden of feeling guilty for what he'd done a long time ago. 
the, uh, there was a lady in his church, in his parish, who told the priest, she said that she hears, when she prays, she says she hears Christ, like responding. Here's the part that's a little flaky, but never, nevertheless, this is part of the story. Um, that she hears Christ responding. And so the priest wants to test her and says, okay, if you hear Christ responding, next time you're, you're there in his presence, ask him what sin your priest committed in seminary. This is a brave priest. I mean, like, what if this is true? And so she says, okay. And so she does. She, does, she comes back, and the priest says, well, did you, did you hear from Christ? And Christ says, yes. And did you ask him what sin your priest committed while in seminary? She says, yes. Well, what did Christ say? She said, Christ said, I can't remember. Well, that's a safe answer from her perspective, but it's also a very true answer from God's. Because, because as Micah says, to have your sins cast to the depths of the sea, Psalms also says this. That, I mean, before, you know, we had submarines that could go down two miles and pick around at the Titanic, we did, when it was in the bottom of the sea, it was gone. I mean, there's no getting it back. And that's the picture that we're meant to see here. That your sins are cast into the sea. And once they're thrown into the sea, there's no getting them back. They're gone. That's what, that's what this uh, story illustrates. When God forgives... He forgets in that it's as if he has cast them into the sea. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity? There's no God like our God. Think about your Egypt. Think about your Moseses. Think about those Balaams that have cursed you. Think about the Jordan rivers that you've crossed. When we put God in the dock, he is found innocent, and we are the ones that are found wanting. Now, turn back to chapter 6, and let's continue there. Once we're convinced of our guilt, what's our response? Chapter 6, verse 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Look at the progression here of a person who realizes his guilt before a God who is holy. Should I give a sacrifice? Should I give thousands of sacrifices? Should I give my own child for my own sin? Well, obviously the questions here are rhetorical because the obvious answer is no. We can't do anything to make atonement for our sin. And the irony here of the question is that God instead gave his firstborn. He gave his son for the sin of our soul. I read about a, a businessman that uh, heard about an elderly widow who was unable to pay her mortgage. And so he, he wanted to help her out. And so he, he mentioned the need to some other people, and they gathered some money. And this businessman went with the money to the widow's house to give it to her. Knocked on the door, and he knew she was home, but she didn't open the door. Knocked again, knocked again, knocked again. Finally, he's like, well, I'll try later. And so he leaves. 
a couple of days later, he sees the widow walking down the street and runs up to her and says, hey, I came to your house and we, uh, we took up a collection and we want to help you with your mortgage. And she says, oh, she says, I saw you coming. I thought you were coming to re- take my house away. Coming to take my house away. You know, I read that and thought, that's often what we feel when we see God knocking on our door. We think he's coming to evict us, when the reality is he's coming with our solution. The knocking that you feel on your heart when you know it's the Lord who's knocking and who's saying, let me in. He's not wanting to come in so that he can condemn you. He's wanting to come in so that he can forgive you, so that he can provide that which you lack in your walk with him. What God is like our God? That the very thing that we lack, that we can't, uh, we can't connect with him because of our sin. Think about this. We are, we are born and into a helpless position. We're, we're born into a helpless position. It's like trying to pole vault to Hawaii or something. It's just, we can't do it. We can try a thousand times and we'd never be able to do it. It is impossible to do. Well, God, God gives us what we can't do. He takes away the problem. He takes away our sin through Christ to where now there's nothing, there's no reason that we can't come to him. He's knocking on the door with a solution. I love that. But we've got to let him in. Look at how God desires those of us who believe in him, those of us who have received this grace to live. Best known verse in Micah, in fact, probably when I mentioned the book of Micah, this is the verse you think about, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. To walk humbly with your God. Keep your finger here for just a second, if you would, and turn to Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2. Proverbs 11, verse 2, is the only other time in the whole Hebrew Bible that this word is used. To walk humbly with your God. Proverbs 11, verse 2 says this, When pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. The only two times in the Bible that that particular word for humble is used is here and in Micah 6.8. Look at the contrast here in Proverbs 11.2. When pride comes, then comes dishonor. This is a word that's referring to a person who has to have it their way. That's what the, the, the Hebrew term means for pride here. It's a person who has to have it their way. This is the person who won't be kicked around. But with the humble is wisdom. It, it sort of harkens back to the same idea. You can turn back to Micah. It sort of harkens to the same idea here in Micah of a person who has to have it their way, 
they're never going to be able to reach God because there's no way other than God's way. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires. Does God want us to live godly lives? Absolutely. But he wants us to do it in response to his grace, not to earn his favor. We live lives that are obedient because God has saved us, not in order to be saved. Verse 8 is considered one of the best timeless expressions of Old Testament ethics, and it gives us another principle. It's a great principle. The second one is this. In spite of a culture that is enthralled with image, determined to develop a godly heart. In spite of a culture that is enthralled with image, determined to develop a godly heart. And I worded that pretty carefully because, first of all, we live in the world enthralled with image. In fact, we, that's what we spent an hour dealing with today, getting ready to come to church, was our image, was how we look. But, and I'm guilty of it too, none of us probably spend an hour getting our heart ready. In spite of a culture enthralled with him, is determined to develop a godly heart. Now, that doesn't mean it all has to happen in the morning, but it needs to happen. We need to, to make a commitment to developing a heart that follows Christ. Because if we don't, then we'll, then we'll be no different than the world. We'll look good on the outside, but as Jesus told the Pharisees, on the inside, you're like white, you're, on the outside, you're like whitewashed tombs, you look great. But on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. We want to be good on the inside as well as on the outside. Micah says that they were to do justice or to act justly. The word here for justice has the idea of simply doing right by others. It means you keep your word. It means that you don't compromise in order just to make a buck. You do what's right, not just when it, look good, when it looks good, but you do what's right because it's right every time, even when no one's looking. And then he narrows it a little more, and he says to love kindness. This goes back to that Hebrew word, hesed. We were told in chapter 7 that God has hesed over us. This is grace. But this is a word that talks about his love and his commitment to us because of a covenant. The covenant is mentioned there in chapter 7 to Abraham. But think about it in your life, and we've talked about this before, but boy, it's so relevant to bring it up again, because we don't do this very well. We struggle with, with loving in this way. It's easier for us to love the waitress at Denny's than it is to love those in our own home. Those that we have a covenant with, they're stuck with us. We can treat them like we want. But boy, we treat somebody else like we don't want, we'll end up you know, getting sued or... At worst, they won't be our friend anymore. That's not how God operates. God loves the ones that he is in a close covenant with. That's what the word hesed means. His loving kindness, particularly toward those that he's in a covenant relationship with. Love, kindness. And then finally, as we've already talked about, walk humbly with your God. The, the focus narrows even more. Well, let's leave Micah for a little bit. Well, actually, we're done with Micah and turn to Matthew. Look at Matthew 
chapter 2. And let's look at a fulfillment of this prophecy of Jesus. You can always remember the two connections. Micah 5, verse 2, talks about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Matthew 5, uh, Micah 5, 2. Matthew 2, 5 is where it's fulfilled. Micah 5, 2, Matthew 2, 5. Or at least that's where it begins. But we're going to begin in verse 1. Matthew 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, notice, not Galilee, of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Let's pause there just a second. If you know anything about Herod the king, or King Herod, Herod the Great, whenever he would hear that the king of the Jews was born, if you know anything about Herod, he was troubled. Not, I mean, he was troubled because he's like, okay, I've got to kill this person. Herod killed anybody that he felt was a threat. He even killed members of his own family, his own sons, if he felt that they were a threat to his present kingdom. And his wife he killed. So this is not a guy that you want to invite over for Thanksgiving. Herod the Great was a despot in every definition of the term. So he hears this, and then it says, all Jerusalem with him. You can bet all Jerusalem was concerned because they think, uh-oh, Herod's mad. Watch out. Verse 4, gathering all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And now he quotes Micah. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I may come and worship him. Well, he didn't mean that, of course. But there's a couple of neat items here to pick out. And it's something actually I discovered when, that when I was in Israel one time and just putting two and two together ge geographically, archaeologically, and, and whatnot. And it fits also with Matthew's theme. Matthew's theme is Jesus as king. It, his, his goal is to answer the question, if Jesus was king, where's the kingdom? And then the answer is because, you know, the Jews rejected him. And so he'll come another day to another generation of Jews that will receive him. And so Jesus as the king is the theme of Matthew. And it works well for this little nugget that I want to share. Uh, Herod the Great, no, well, let me back up. The Magi came, we're told, to Jerusalem. And then we're told that Herod secretly called the Magi. So they come to Herod. Herod's palace, if you were to go to Jerusalem today, you would go to a, a gate called the Jaffa Gate because it faces ancient Joppa. And uh, that's where Herod's palace was. It was huge. In fact, it basically takes up all, all the whole Armenian quarter today. It, it was a large palace. And you can go just inside the Jaffa Gate. There are remains of Herod's palace that you can go and see 
and there's a great museum about Jerusalem, and anyway, it's a great place. But this is almost certainly where the wise men came and talked with Herod about he who was born king of the Jews in Herod's palace. Now, turn to Matthew 27. Look at a very interesting connection. Matthew 27, verse 11. We fast forward several decades into the future. King Herod has died. Rome decides we're done with having kings ruling over Judea. Now we're going to have Roman governors or procurators. Pontius Pilate is the Roman governor. Guess where the procurators or the governors lived when they stayed in Jerusalem? They stayed in Herod's palace because that was the best place in Jerusalem. That's, that's where they lived. Herod also had a palace called the Praetorium in Caesarea, and that's where Pontius Pilate lived most of the time. But when Pilate was in Jerusalem, he, li he lived in Herod's palace. We know this from Josephus and Philo. They tell us this is where Pontius Pilate lived. This is the Praetorium where he judged Jesus. Matthew 27, verse 11. Look at this. Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. The point here is that Jesus is standing in the same house, and he's hearing this question, the same palace, that the wise men came and asked the question, where is he who's born king of the Jews? Fast forward three decades, the king of the Jews is standing in the very same house, and Pilate is asking him, are you the king of the Jews? The people originally reading this would have known what you and I don't, didn't know about where uh, Herod lived, where Pilate lived. And make that connection of God's irony, that in the very house where the Magi came to the king who tried to kill Jesus, Jesus stood in that house facing the Roman governor, and he basically says, I am. I am the king of the Jews. And then look down at verse 37 as the irony gets even thicker. Well, actually, look at verse 35. And when they crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots, sitting down they began to keep watch over him there, and above his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. This is Matthew's theme. Here it's used in mockery, but one day all will, all will confess it. And that sort of brings us back to where we began, because when, if all we see is the outside, our Messiah died on the cross. That looks pretty sad. But the reality is Jesus also rose and gave us a preview of our future. Right now, we're bearing a cross. We're living a life that's tough. We're struggling. We're asking God, like Christ did on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Often that's our prayer. God, why don't you do something? And the reality is the answer comes in the resurrection. And in our resurrection, too, is where we get everything that we've been longing for and so much more. I've thought about this quite a bit over the last couple of weeks, and that is all the questions that we have for God, all the things that we want to say, Lord, why this? Why that? Why don't you do this? I believe that as soon as we, uh, as soon as we see Christ, we're just going to go, oh, and that's going to take care of the whole deal right there. 
that our knowledge of a God so awesome and sovereign, sort of like Job, as he just gets this picture of God's greatness, all of his, all of his struggles, all of his suffering, all of his questions, all of his accusations, all of the things that throughout life that you've gone, God, why haven't you? As soon as we see Christ, it's all just going to fall away, and we're just going to be in his presence. Won't that be great? So when you feel like God's burdened you, ponder his acts of grace in your life. Second, in spite of a culture enthralled with image, determine to develop a godly heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the prophet Micah and having the courage and the foresight seven centuries before Jesus to speak to his generation challenging them to do what's right, to love justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. We take on that same challenge in our day, in our generation, in a culture that is enthralled with image. May we be enthralled with the quality of our heart before you. Help us to walk humbly and not in pride. And thank you also for Micah's prophecy that points to Matthew's fulfillment and Matthew's theme of Jesus as the King of the Jews that gives us the future encouragement that all that we're longing for one day will be taken care of in the resurrection. Thank you for this season where the world, whether it wants to or not, has to deal with Christmas, has to deal with the word Christ. Even in saying season's greetings, it is a deliberate decision about Christ. And Lord, help us as, we, uh, as we're testimony to the world to be a testimony of grace. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.